This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there, Knicks fans. How are you? It's your boy, John of the Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. Um, coming at you from uh, late Sunday afternoon. Um, I have Jeremy Cohen with me online. Jeremy, um, I, I, I <laughs> was about to ask you how you are, but I don't I, I, How are any of us these days? Um, so I'll say this. What's, what's going on? Yeah. Um, it's a loaded question, honestly. <laughs> a lot, a lot's going on in this world. You want to start? Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I didn't even tell you this. I am. And I don't know if you were having any of the same thoughts. I, I like went back and forth as to whether or not it even was appropriate to record an episode today, just because, um, I'm here, here. It's like on one, like there's part of me who's like, and ultimately why I, I think it it's, I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but why I decided I thought it was the best move is, um, you know, when shit like this is going down, um, I think distractions, uh, play a role in keeping people sane because you know and i thought about this because mike vorkanoff had a good tweet uh i think it was maybe earlier today or yesterday i forget where he's like you know it's i think it's for the best that we don't have sports right now because we don't have anything else to turn our attention to and it forces us all collectively as a country to turn and face what's going on and and engage with it and deal with it and I mean, you know, on, on the most visceral level, just look, um, and listen. Um, and I, I agree with that sentiment at the same time to do that for every waking minute of, uh, every day. Cause I, I mean, I, I, li- I don't know how long all of this is going to last. Um, I think that's a bit much. And I think of, and I, and honestly, I thought of, you know, the, the podcast or two that I like to listen to and there will be a, there will come a time tomorrow on Monday where I'm like, man, I need whatever, a half an hour or 40 minutes to just zone out and think about something else, uh, which is why, you know, we're not going to dedicate this entire episode to talking about what, what is going on, because I, I think there is something to be said for providing a, a release, um, so to speak, even though it is 
utterly meaningless, but sometimes you need a little meaningless um, amidst things that have a whole lot of meaning. And, you know, look, I mean, we could sit here and we could talk for hours about everything that's going on and maybe give some insight and maybe not. There are people far, 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 far smarter than us who have already penned and uttered words that are far more um, poignant and uh, helpful than either of us could could ever utter. Um, so I I encourage anybody listening, if you have not taken a little bit of time to read some of that stuff, I, I thought um, just a couple quick plugs. I thought Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's piece this morning in, um, I believe it was the LA Times. I should know because I retweeted it. Um, hold on, I'm look, looking it up right now. Yes, it is in the LA Times. Um, I thought that was excellent. Um, I, there's, you know, there's a lot of good stuff on the internet is on Twitter. You know, the uh, killer Mike had like an eight and a half minute, um, I guess I'll call it a speech, uh, from a couple nights ago that I think is probably the best thing that I've heard or read. Um, and all I want to say, and then I'll turn it over to you, Jeremy, is just, I encourage people not only to engage with what is going on, and I, and I don't mean literally go and find a protest near you, although if that is something that you want to do, I mean, all the power to you in the world. Um, and I, I hope that I would, I would, if I did not have a small child at home, um, I, I would be doing that myself. Although I, you know, we all like to think we'll, we do, we would do the thing that we would hope that we would do in, in situations like this, if circumstances were different. Um, but also just keep an open mind and, you know, anybody who sees my Twitter feed knows kind of what side of these issues I fall on. Um, I don't really make an attempt to hide that, but you know, even like no matter what side you fall on, just take a minute or 10 minutes at some point today, tomorrow. And just, I think, try to think of things from the other side. And I, Jeremy, I was thinking about this before and I was like, how can I in some way, shape or form relate this to sports or even the Knicks? And it's funny because I was thinking like, we've become such a binary society in terms of how we discuss things. It's like, all right, I like Frank Nilkina, right? So I must hate Carmelo Anthony. Um, or, you know, I, you know, I think James Dolan was wrong in the Spike Lee thing. Therefore, I think he is a cancerous plague on the organization and never does anything good. It's like, it's, it's always either or. And especially in times like this, it's like, I feel like there's this temptation for, um, all of us to be like, well, you know, um, if you're in the right, or at least what I consider the right, it's like, well, you know, every, every cop is, is bad. Um, and, you know, there is an excuse for every, you know, person who is doing any looting and, and, you know, things that are, are not f frankly right. And it's like, that's just, that's not the case. And the reason we're in the situation as a country is because we became so binary and it was so, everything became so black or black and white. And I mean that, yes, in every sense of the term. Um, and we, Regardless of what your personal opinion is on anything, just take a minute and 
try to see things from the other side. And I think if we do that collectively, um, you know, cause it's been a long time since we did that and, you know, it sucks because there's a lot of forces that encourage us to not do that right now. Um, that's it. I mean, I, like I said, I could talk about this and just pontificate for hours and probably not say much of anything, but that's really the one thing that I wanted to say. So Jeremy, I, I will turn it over to you before we get to, um, you know, other things. Sure. <clears throat> sure. Well said, John. Um, yeah, you know, back in college, I went to a, a Black Lives Matter protest and my alma mater was actually founded because the Ivies had their quotas and wouldn't really let Jews in. So social justice is kind of the backbone of the institution. Um, but what of the uh, the students tend to have a vested interest on in being outspoken and, and kind of challenging the status quo. And at the protest, one black student was speaking about driving at night and she talked about just the concept of getting pulled over. And as she was doing it, she started weeping. And this was as she was driving, she was weeping. And even as she was recounting the story, um, she was a mess. She had to be consoled um, by a fellow student. And she said in her, um, uh, in her speech that at the time she needed someone to actually come physically to help her because she just, she was so overcome with, with concern because of a potential run in. Um, and, you know, yesterday I, I traveled with my parents to have a socially distant day with my grandfather. And uh, my mom took the, the day shift. I drove back at night and I was driving pretty late and I saw flashing lights in my rear view mirror. And my first thought as I was doing 75 in a 60 mile per hour zone because I wanted to get home was, am I going to get caught for speeding? And skin color wasn't a factor. It wasn't even a thought. And that's the point. And so, I got, you know, I. I don't think there's a lot that needs to be said uh, because the last thing anyone I think needs to hear is about the struggle that black people go through every day. Um, and it's, I mean, from the perspective of a straight white male, uh, especially if you are listening to this and you are black, you definitely don't need me to state the obvious. Um, but, you know, John, you talked about sports and the driving force of what we talk about on a weekly basis is black people. The black community has made this sport what it is today. And Jalen Rose, um, he talked about how black athletes are living yeah. beings who aren't created merely for our entertainment and popular consumption. That was good. And it's so disappointing that that even had to be said in the first place. But he's absolutely right. But, you know, the thing is, I mean, I'm Jewish, but I don't have to think about the Holocaust or the diaspora or pogroms or the ghettos to feel something about what's going on right now. Like it, We have eyes, we have ears, we have emotions we we can be able to see i mean when people get shot with rubber bullets when they're blinded whatever it may be there's there's you don't need to necessarily come to to a conclusion of drawing on past experiences to understand what's clearly right in front of you but you know if it helps and it helps you if it's a person who maybe doesn't have as much um sympathy for the situation if that's the sort of thing that can help you then so be it. But, you know, I mean, it's like I, I've never thought that a trip to the deli could lead to someone, a police officer's uh, kneeling on my neck and killing me. Um, I've never gone jogging and thought I could get shot or I've never been concerned about being shot in my home in the backyard. And I certainly haven't been I certainly haven't thought that I could get shot while I'm driving a car by a police officer. So all of that is privilege. And whether we as 
white people choose to recognize that we have it or ignorantly, ignorantly ignore it. Um, that's what, that's simply what we have. And so I, you know, I'm with you in terms of donations. I, I, I saw you donated to the Minnesota fund. Um, that's awesome. I, I, I personally, because there's been so many fantastic outreach or there's been so many, there's been so much support for that particular fund. Um, I think I did Brooklyn, Louisville, and a, a couple others to the point where it's just kind of, I, I would recommend spreading it out because this is now not just a Minnesota movement. This is a national movement. And it's a movement that's certainly been going on for quite a long time. Um, certainly educate yourself, yourselves, talk to people, but most importantly, listen. Um, I, I learned that there's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth. And I think that's a completely true <laughs> thing. Um, you know, I never heard that before. That's great. Yeah. 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 But no, I mean, listen, it's, it's um, for those who are certainly feeling the biggest impact here. We're here for you. We support you. We stand with you. And um, it's going to take time, but yeah, it's just, it's just um, well, at a certain point, it's like you could, you could, as you're saying, pontificate for hours. Yeah. And yet, what are you, what are you necessarily saying? So what, one other, one other thing I want to say um, as my, as my, I really need to get a new, uh, a new mic. Uh, what is this called? Mike shield. Um, one other, the last thing I'll say, um, just because like, I remember when I first started teaching, um, I went to a training, um, and I, I did not think this way until someone actually had to say it to me because I, when I first started teaching, I was like, I am going to go teach at a, a school in a, uh, inner city setting. It's not so much the inner city anymore because Brooklyn's changed quite a lot, but, um, you know, in a student, in a setting that, that serves, um, kids that are from the inner city. And I was like, I'm going to, I am going to be able to, this is my mentality. When I went in, I said, I'm going to be able to, to sympathize and empathize with these kids because I too have felt, um, you know, um, not oppressed. That's the wrong word, but like, I know what it is to feel like I can't do something or I'm, you know, uh, people don't think I'm good enough. Um, and I I forget what training it was, but basically someone was like, you know, you might think, you know, you know, speaking to like people who, who are not um, dark skinned, um, they're like, you know, you might think, you know, you don't. And I needed to be told that. And I was over 30, I think, at the time. Um, and I'll just I don't care how you know, woke you are. <laughs> I can't believe I just used the term woke on this podcast, but I did. Um, the, I think at times like this, if you're a, a white person, um, the, maybe the most important thing you could do is understand. And, and you, what you said reminded me of this because you were driving and, and you know, you saw the sirens and like, it didn't cross your mind. Like no amount of introspection or, lived experience in whatever walk of life. I mean, I've, I've taught, you know, black and, and brown children, you know, every day for the last five years. Um, it doesn't matter. You'll never know what it's like to wake up in that skin and walk in those shoes and go to bed at night in, in that bed. And I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot, again, I don't, I really don't want to go on too long about this, but I think a lot of the problems originate from the fact that there are people out there who are like, listen, all due respect, I've had 
issues in my life too. I've had difficulties. I've had unfairnesses um, thrust upon me, you know, and I'm not black. Okay. That may very well be true, but I know enough as a, as a white person to know that whatever, whatever that thing is with you, I'm not, you know, or whoever, someone you may know, or me or, or you, Jeremy, whoever, we've all felt it at some point, a time where we're like, you know, felt held down. It's not, it's not the same. And as you're watching the news, as you're maybe feeling conflicted over rioting, over looting, over buildings burning, over cars burning, over the whole thing, just, and, and again, there's some folks that are doing that stuff that are, that are not people of color. And that is a whole separate issue, but I digress. Um, just understand it is different and you can't possibly process it. You can't possibly understand it. And I say that knowing that I don't understand it, but I know enough to say that I can't understand it and I will never understand it. I think the sooner we all, um, those of us who are not black can just say that and say like, listen, I don't get it. I, I will never get it, but I'm here for you. Um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a positive step. So that's all I want to say. Um, Jeremy, thank you. That was incredibly well said um, and poignant. Yeah. So <laughs> fucking I'm talk a little bit, a little basketball on a Sunday. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, all right. Well, the Knicks might have a new coach. Um, by the way, I, I saw a bleacher report forwarded. Um, I guess it was Steph Bondi's story from yesterday. I didn't even notice that at the time that apparently uh, Tom Thibodeau was already making calls, putting together his potential coaching staff. Did you catch that yesterday? I didn't catch it until today. I did. Yeah. Um, uh, that's interesting. It sure is. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, te- did I text you or did I text? Yeah, I texted you um, where I was like, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just because I've been beaten down with, I, Nixdom for too many years, but like I've not only come around to the idea of Tom Thibodeau coaching the team, I I think I'm almost embracing it. Um, and I don't know what that says about me or my ability to cogently form opinions anymore about this team. Um, but I think that's where I'm at. Um, and it's really pretty simple. It's like you either think the guy is a smart guy who is talking about introspection introspective enough to like learn and grow as a coach or you think he's an idiot um who's stuck in his ways and is never going to change from certain beliefs that he has and i uh, you know i choose to believe the former um and that he's like really raring to go and give this thing a real shot um that's where i'm at where where are you jeremy i mean i'm at the i'm at the point where i almost expect him to be the coach and things can change, obviously. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, I look at he's such an interesting uh, case study because I, I was I was trying to track what his progress is. And I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of misconceptions about what goes on. And I tweeted out last week just how it seemed a little crazy to me how so many fans could be adamantly against such a good coach. I mean, this is someone who I believe has won. I think I said he's like a winning percentage of 589. And sure, I mean, you could you could point out other coaches who are not very good, who have high winning percentages. But 
just listen to this for a second before I get to that. Um, I think it was really funny that you said binary earlier because I do really like Tom Thibodeau, but I also like Kenny Atkinson. Yeah. And so liking one certainly doesn't negate the other. Like if you, if you gave me three coaches and said Tibbs, Atkinson and Miller, I'd say, you know what? That That's okay. That's, you could do a lot worse than having those three guys as your top three. If that is in fact what the Knicks plan to do. Um, but with, with Thibodeau, I was thinking, you know, what is he able to do defensively, offensively? Because this is a guy who was an assistant head coach for a Knicks team that went to the finals, an associate head coach for the Celtics team that won the finals. And he coached the Bulls, the Eastern Conference finals, and he coached the Wolves, their first playoff appearance in 14 years. So a lot of the things I had seen were, you know, like, oh, he, he grinds players down. He, he kills them for their careers rather. Um, you know, he, he doesn't care about minutes. His schematically, he's terrible offensively. And, and some of this does have merit. You wrote about this in your article. And I, I wholeheartedly agree that there is a minutes problem. hundred percent. I, I completely think that there is, but I think that the injury problem that leads to it is very much overblown. I, and I do want to start with Derek Rose because I think he is the, the number one taste. Uh, uh, he's the number one uh, case study, if you will. Um, so this is this is from an ESPN article, and th- the big thing that I have hi- hi- from a hypothesis standpoint is that I truly believe that Derrick Rose was not hurt because of Tibbs. I think he was hurt because of a shortened schedule due to the lockout, and how when you go back and you look at all of these games that the Bulls played, it's it's back to backs. It's three games and four. Uh, the most rest that you'll probably get are two to three days. And the longest rest that the Bulls had was six games. And that was over the All-Star break, which Derrick Rose played and he played in the game. So this, this is just from an excerpt. Um, it's the list of Rose's injuries is long, particularly for a young and otherwise healthy professional athlete. It all began less than two weeks into the season when Rose fell hard enough on his elbow to warrant x-rays. He escaped unscathed. X-rays were negative. But that would be the last time he would be so lucky. Less than a week later, a collision with with Timberwolves forward Anthony Tolliver resulted in a sprained left big toe. He missed one game but returned to action three days later despite persistent pain. He lasted two games but then was forced to miss the next four because of the toe. Rose returned to the lineup in late January and seemed to be off to a fresh start. Then the problems really began. Back spasms cropped up in February and forced Rose out for more than a week. A few weeks later, there were reports of a groin strain which led to another dozen absences. Rose returned for one game, yes, just one, before a sprained right ankle caused him to miss more time. Days later, it was his right foot sign lighting him. Rose, who had missed very little game action before the season, expressed frustration with the cumulative injuries at the time, telling reporters, for someone to not miss more than seven, ten games in a year in my first three seasons, to miss 20-something, 30-something, it hurts, man. It has to hurt even more now. Rose, who missed nearly 40% of the regular season contests, did not get through even one full playoff game before an injury finally did him in. Although the injuries were not reported as related, it is hard to imagine there is zero connection. The body is, after all, a series of kinetic chains, and as the familiar saying goes, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Any residual weakness from one injury, no matter how subtle, can certainly contribute to a lack of overall strength, potentially creating an inherent risk in further injury. So look, he played a lot of minutes, and you can look back and see it. Too many for my liking. But he wasn't responsible for colliding with Tolliver, which started this chain of injuries. Yeah. 
And when you're looking at someone who's 23 years old playing 81, 78, and 81 games before having an almost seven-month rest period and then getting hurt, and he had played with Thibodeau the season before, I don't know, man. It just To me, it does not scream Tibbs is at fault. I, I think he's a contributing factor, no doubt. But well, he, he, didn't, he didn't start the chain of, of command. He didn't really cause it to be the issue in the first place. But also, you know – Look, I mean, we could talk for a long, you know, Tibbs, I think his, his go-to line is you play your best players, the, the most minutes. And there is, he was probably at one extreme of that. And I would say probably, I guess Kawhi Leonard is at the other extreme of that, you know, in terms of minutes and taking games off. My, my big thing is this, that's, this is an organizational decision in terms of how strict you want to be with guys minutes. And it all, it's like, you know, you know, giving a guy enough rope to hang himself with. Well, there are some things that you can't, some instances where you can't take the rope away from your head coach, right? So like, you know, we saw the obvious example is Phil Jackson with the triangle. You don't want someone calling plays from, you know, the management box. Um, that much is obvious. There are other things that should not be dictated by the front office. Um, in terms of like, you know, setting limits for, for minutes for players and like giving, you know, occasional days off and whatnot, that can and should be an organizational decision. And you know what? If Tibbs goes in there on his interview, I don't know if he's even going to, you know, if he's even going to be an interviewer, they're just going to hand him the job, but whatever. Theoretically, if he's sitting there, Leon Rose should ask him, Hey, how do you feel about player minutes? Is there a, is there such a thing as too many? And if there's a wishy-washy answer that Leon Rose is not comfortable with, well, you know, guess what? It's up to Leon Rose to be like, well, listen, um, as an organization, we feel like we should let our sports science people be involved with these types of decisions. We know there was maybe some tension there in terms of management, you know, talking to you and, and implementing things in Chicago. Are we going to have any kind of issue like that here? And if he says no... Then great, problem solved. If he says yes, then you continue to talk about it and you resolve it one way or the other. But like, I I don't get whether Tibbs is completely in the wrong or completely in the right. I don't get why this should all fall on him with the Knicks. I'm far more concerned about his ability to construct a modern offense with, you know, some real grounded principles um, that will that will go forward. And I guess to a certain extent, like his willingness to, you know, give some kids some rope. But again, as I quoted in the article that I wrote last week, he played, you know, kids a whole lot during his time in Minnesota. Now, granted, a little bit of a different scenario because we're talking about Towns' first pick, Wiggins' first pick, Levine, you know, highly touted um, lottery pick. No, you know, he, he was a rookie. There was no bloom off that rose. Uh, Knox, a little different story. Frank, to a lesser extent, a little different story. So, but again, to me, those are organizational decisions. You're hiring a coach to pl- to call the X's and O's. Um, everything else, I think, gets decided on overall, which is why I, I don't I don't have nearly a big of, as big of an issue with this hire as some people do. And I'm I'm like, do people think he just forgot how to coach? I, what's the? I don't I don't really know. I think people don't take into consideration the fact that he was president of basketball operations and he was also coaching, which historically speaking has not been 
the best combination of things to do. I mean, even Pop couldn't do it. And Pop is one of, if not the greatest head coaches of our time. Stan Van Gundy, I mean, he certainly oh, flamed no, out in Detroit. It, it's no just, one could do it. Not, right. It's just not – you're too close. You're too involved. You need someone who's also not completely – uh, invested in the clubhouse, you can kind of see things from above the clouds instead of in the trenches. And doing both at the same time, it's just a very challenging thing. Um, but, you know, I, I went back because I was curious and I looked at all of the, because I mean, defense is his calling card. And I looked at the defensive ratings over the years. So he took over in New York from the, at least he, he went to the bench in the 96 97 season. And the year before that, the Knicks were fourth. So already a very good defense, elite defense. Um, the year he first arrived, they were second. Then the fourth, fourth, sixth, third. And then you've got 19th and 23rd. And then he was out. Then he went to the Rockets. The Rockets were 10th the year prior. He got there. He was fifth, then fourth, then sixth, then third. And then he went to the Celtics. And that year, the Celtics, or the Rockets were second. Um, but the Celtics were 18th the year prior and traded for Garnett and Ray Allen. They had the best defense in the league and then the second best and then the fifth. And then he went to the Bulls and they had the 11th best defense. And then they had the first and the first and the sixth and the second and the 11th. And then he went to the Wolves who had the 28th and then he guided them to 27th. Not a huge improvement. Then 25th. Not a huge improvement. But then he was 17th when he got fired, and then they went to 27th after he got fired. And then last year, or this past season, they were 21st. And then offensively, because there's a big concern with his offense, when he joined the Bulls, they were 27th. His first year, they were 12th. Then 5th, 23rd with no rows, 28th, 11th, 10th with the Wolves. They were 13th the year prior. Then they were 4th, then 15th, and then he got fired. Then they were 13th. And this past season, they were 23rd. So a lot of numbers being thrown out. The way I look at it is he is making positive change. He is able to come into an organization and definitively show, whether it's on one side of the ball or the other, that he has been able to make significant progress. Now, of course, you want it to be both at the same time, right? You want him to have more shooters. You surround him with more shooters. And maybe from that schematic standpoint, he's actually able to do more because that was a huge problem with Chicago and that was a bit of a problem with Minnesota. And, you know, I mean, the thing with Kenny Atkinson is that at least this is my perspective. And, and maybe this is a little misguided. I feel like Kenny Atkinson has shown proof that he can develop a young team, right? He guided them to 42 wins. It's a really great job. The thing is that when you look at what he's been able to do, this, the Nets took a lot of threes. But they were, I want yeah. to say, and I think uh, Posting and Toasting talked about this, they're like 26th in terms of efficiency in shooting. So if your goal is kind of just chuck up shots, even if they're not efficient and, and you happen to have good three-point shooters, so it goes in, that's great. I don't know how long-standing that is. But I think that both of these guys have a reputation. And Kenny Atkinson's is so young that in terms of what he's able to do, like when, when Thibodeau was his age – he was in the Eastern Conference Finals. And Atkinson, at the age he is at right now, he's out of a job. We don't know what he would have done with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So we're, we're kind of just looking at the potential, right? Yeah, but that, but that should also, you know, shouldn't be ignored. It's not, uh, no, it shouldn't. You know. but, but, and, and I know this might come off as a little delusional. 
But I really do think that perception plays a major role here. And I say that because I was reading an article. I want to say it was a New York Post article the other day. And there were two photos. One was of Atkinson and one was of Tibbs. And the one of Atkinson was him a little bit more jovial, um, into it, but not not intense, right? And the other one with Tibbs is he's gruff. You can tell that he's probably lost his voice and it's the first quarter already. You know that he's out there screaming. And, and it's it almost feels like the perception that is played out is like Atkinson is this cool guy who can develop young players. And Thibodeau is this older guy who just screams a lot and runs down his guys. And look, whether it's true or not, I don't I don't think it is. But my my big thing with Twitter this past week was it feels like there are certainly pluses and minuses with Thibodeau. But it also seems like a big perception with Atkinson is that a lot of the things that he was doing get swept under the rug, like the X's and O's part. Yeah. Or the fact that he was fired and we can say, OK, or he was, you know, it was an agreement for him to go. And I think it's very easy to say, well, Durant and Kyrie didn't want him. But we don't know the facts. They're going to be mercurial stars everywhere. And sure, they might be a little bit more than most. But there's just a lot of lingering questions. And he also has not led a team to to more than that. And I, I get it. He 42 wins with that roster is very good. Well, even hold on. Russell, but even D'Angelo. That Russell wasn't a bad roster. What? That wasn't his last Nets team. That wasn't a bad roster. I mean, it was it was, it was OK. I mean, look, they, they went above and beyond in terms of expectations, but it's not like going out in five games against the Sixers isn't something to throw a parade over. And I think even Nets fans would agree. They would say this was great, but. You know, uh, and it led to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, but it's it's not you're like that can't be your ceiling. You know what he realized? He realized the two best players on his team were D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie, and he was going to construct an offense around the talents of those two guys. And the talents of those two guys are not terribly dissimilar. So he, yes, was he smart enough to figure out how to, you know? And look, this is the guy that I would probably pick over Tibbs because for and but again, my reasoning is is kind of warped. It because it would signal to me that the team was engaging in a in a years long rebuild, which is the if I in my perfect world that doesn't exist because it's not going to happen. Um, that's the way I'd want them to go. But yeah, no, I, I every every point you're making is great, and I, I just want to throw in one other number. Um, and I cited it in the newsletter. They with um so in. 2017-18, which is his only full season coaching uh, Jimmy Butler, right? Um, Jimmy Butler and Taj Gibson were on the floor for roughly half of the Wolves' possessions. And I cited they had the equivalent of a top five defense during that time. Um, 105.8 um, points against via cleaning the glass, which filters out garbage time. Um, without either of those guys on the floor, 113.4 um, points given up. So I, you could take that stat one of two ways. Well, of course, it's going to be better because, you know, if you give a, a guy good defensive players, he's going to have a good defense. I think the other way to cite it is like, well, there are a lot of situations in the league where you could have multiple good defensive players on the floor at the same time. And coaches either aren't smart enough to lean into that enough or um, they aren't able to fully utilize the talent that they they have on the floor. And I think the discrepancy to me speaks to the fact that 
that was a pretty dog shit roster when you're talking about defensive players. We're talking, do you guys, you realize they gave minutes to Jamal Crawford in addition to Wiggins and Towns and like Bailitza, who's not, you know, anything to write home about um, defensively. Jeff Teague, like, that's a bad defensive roster outside of Butler and Gibson. Right. And he helped build that, which is what he would not be doing here. Exactly. Which yeah. is why bringing in, you know, Perrin and Zanon and I mean, Rose, all of these guys where if they're able to give him players who can do other things, as in, you know, space the floor a little bit better instead of taking a whole bunch of mid-range shots, that's a huge factor. And someone actually tweeted at me that today's players don't care. They don't know how to, you know, they don't really focus on team defense. And I think that's bullshit. Because I look at Anthony Towns, who just lost 18 games in a row for the games that he appeared in. And I look at Andrew Wiggins, who basically Glenn Taylor said, look, Andrew, we need you to be better. All right. We need you to improve. Um, Can you do that? And Wiggins said, yeah. And he said, "Okay, cool. Here's a five year max contract. Like that's essentially the way it worked. And Wiggins was like, cool, I'm not going to care anymore because I got paid. And then you look at someone, it's like, I'm thinking of those guys. Can I say something real quick on Wiggins? Frankie Lakina and RJ Barrett. And I think to myself, they would sacrifice everything, every goddamn thing on that floor to play team defense or individual defense, whatever you want to do. They will do it. Frank will do it until his groin falls (laughs) off of his. Please, you know, please don't let Frank's groin fall. No, but just real quick on Wiggins. They gave up a first round pick in what is considered to be one of the best drafts this century to exchange Andrew Wiggins for um, D'Angelo Russell. This is a year after Tibbs got fired. So it, to not place some of the blame on the guys that were there and the organization had invested in that they had to play those big minutes to me is silly. I, I just want to throw that in there. I do just want to go back to the injury factor for one more reason. Sure. Um, I want to list a few players. Um, Luol Dang is often cited as a player that Tibbs ruined and he played a lot. Don't get me wrong here. He played 39.1 minutes, 39.4 minutes and 38.7 minutes under Tibbs for the, for three seasons. That's really, that's a long time. Um, But no one really mentions the fact that Dang also averaged 37 and a half minutes in 2006, 2007 or 37.9 in 2008, 2009, 2010. Both of those times predate Tibbs, and he played 82 games both of those seasons. So it's not like these guys just can't do it, or or it should is a different story, obviously, but it's not like Tibbs is the only one doing this either. I mean, we saw, and you even tweeted about this, too, or you had it in your article, I tweeted about it, where Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns both played every single game that Tibbs coached, yep. and he played them at high minutes. And yet Zach Levine tours ACL and it's just like, oh, well, he got hurt and that's Tibbs' fault. But maybe some guys just aren't built that way. Some are. I agree. The risk of injury certainly impacts that. It gets – it increases as you play minutes. But, you know, it was like someone – it was something where someone said something about big men and shouldn't play big minutes. And I was like, yeah, I, I could agree with that. They're seven-footers for sure. But then I looked at Shaq's stats and then I looked at the fact that he really didn't get hurt and he was playing heavy minutes, even in the 90s when it was a lot more grueling, obviously. But then you look at someone like Julius Randle who steps on the court in his first game and then obliterates his leg and is out for the season. We can't predict any of this. Bodies are built differently. Some can handle it better than others as long as you're more mindful of it. You know, like Injuries are going to happen no matter what. It's just a matter of taking into consideration – and doing a better job of it. And 
hopefully, yes, hopefully he really does do a better job of it. But again, I just, I really think it's overblown. And the other thing I want to talk about is Jimmy Butler, where someone else said that the only reason that the, the bulls did, or excuse me, that the, the wolves did well was because of Jimmy Butler. And it's like, okay, yes. Well, he also was, uh, developed and coached by twice, um, and traded for by Thibodeau. And it's kind of the thing with the Kenny Atkinson viewpoint. Um, Yes, you have Kenny Atkinson and D'Angelo Russell, but you also have Jimmy Butler and Tom Thibodeau. I'm sure that the player is the primary person who's responsible for them taking the leap. But at the same time, you look at it, it's like, well, what kind of coaching? Yeah, what? Name me the fucking coach. (laughs) Mike Mike D'Antoni won coach of the year in Houston and coach of the year in Phoenix. And in between, he coached the Knicks and he couldn't do shit. Why? Because his best player was Al fucking Harrington. I'm sorry for cursing, but yeah, seriously. You know, I mean, it's we also just we don't know what this roster will look like under whichever coach is coaching. I mean, I I'm with you. I think that it's a lot more likely that the team kind of mobilizes a little bit faster than maybe fans would like. I I don't think that Rose came in for anything more than a one year job. And what I mean by that is essentially like kicking the can around or trying to be bad for a year. And I don't think they'll try to be bad for a year. But What's really fascinating to me is if it is Tibbs, what happens to that roster? Because when you look at the players that he's coached, oftentimes he's had bigs who are really good passers. And I've talked about this before. I've talked about Mitch's shortcomings here. I'm just I'm very curious because there was also the report that Begley had. And, you know, Ian's Ian's done a great job, um, certainly with the old organization. The new one, it's uh, Leon is a little bit harder to crack because seems like it, right? Yeah, things are just a little bit more covert. But the one thing that Ian did report was that all indications are the Knicks still plan to find uh, a lead guard and they look they're looking for outside shooting. And you could look at it two ways, right? You could look at it one um that's that spells trouble for Mitch because they clearly want guys who can shoot and Mitch doesn't do that. Or you could say two, which is that they want guys who can shoot because that complements Mitch better. But the fact that he is not a good passer and you would hope that he could at least be developed that way um, by whoever is coaching it, you know, expand his game in several different areas A post game. Uh, sure. If he wants to shoot, he can, um, you know, setting just harder picks, just all these little things that can, can help him. Well, grow. yeah, I, I think, and that's, that's where that's the, on the offensive end. And that's, but that's where the Atkinson conversation comes in is like, look, you know, development is an art, not a not a science. And we know Kenny Atkinson can do it, but at the same time, you know, again, we know we know Tibbs could do it because I don't how the 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 Chicago team that he took from I'm looking it up right now forty one wins to sixty two wins. What is that if it is not development? And then the the last thought on Thibodeau. I mean, look, the Knicks have won two playoff series. Um, this century, um, what two playoff series or one playoff series? The century, one playoff series, one, one playoff series. The century, Tibbs won four in five years in Chicago, and he had a healthy Derrick Rose for some of that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how else you say it, but it's interesting. This is a good transition because you talk about, you know what they're going to do next year. And we've been dancing around this for a while. And I think we should just come right out and say it. You know, we, I I think we both feel very strongly that 
this is not going to be a, a development year in the sense that like they're just going to play a bunch of young players without any regard for winning games. But the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is I also think we both feel that the new regime is smart enough to look long-term and have the big picture at stake. And I think they're going to try to have their cake and eat it too. Um, by like not, not going out and doing the big flashy move, which is why I've got, I've waxed and waiting on the Chris Paul thing in terms of what I think they're going to do. I'm back on. No, I don't think they're going to make a trade for him. Stay there. Uh, what's that? <laughs> Stay there. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I just, I, I think they're waiting for a bigger fish. And I, but I do think when they get the right fish and when they see it, you know, uh, I'm, I'm mixing up uh, several different analogies here, but when there's, when they see a little bit of blood in the water, they're going to go for it and they're going to go for it in a big way. And I don't know who that fish is going to be. Um, but I think there is a chance that we enter next season without, you know, a big name on the roster. And they try to make that play in the middle of the year. I find it interesting what you said about Mitch, um, that maybe they're not as invested in him. I, I would be surprised if they did not at least outwardly project a high level of investment in Mitchell Robinson. But you never know. Um, I didn't mean to imply, you know, like Tibbs comes in and he's instantly gone. It's more yeah, than no, 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 it's a decision that has to look whether the Knicks want to keep Mitchell Robinson or not has to be resolved by the trade deadline at the latest. Oh, I think it has to be resolved by the draft, actually. Right. Well, because I, I, I actually I believe that the best, the highest value he will have as a player in the NBA. And I'm, this is not me advocating for trading him at the draft. I'm just saying from a value standpoint as an asset, you know, because as, as crass as it is, all of these, every one of the players in the NBA are assets. Um, and you try to trade, sell, sell high and, and buy low. Um, it's, I don't think it's going to get higher than at this year's draft. And I think you may have an opportunity to, to make a swap for somebody else's pick. But again, I digress. Well, the one thing I would say to that, and it goes back to Mike Vorkanoff's quote about Brock Aller, which is assigning values to players. So one thing that the um, very close to the Knicks, the Rangers have done for years is they've had guys who are entering their walk years and they'll say to them, Here's an extension. And more often than not, the player will say, you know, I want to hit free agency. I don't want to go in there. And then the Rangers have said, okay, cool. Uh, noted. We got it. And then they'll go into the season. And whatever happens, maybe it's uh, maybe they're playing well. Maybe they're playing poorly. Um, in this past year, they were playing better than they have been in the past years. And they said to Chris Kreider, they said, look, you know, we've traded other guys in the past at the deadline. There is a deadline and we're going to trade you unless you sign this extension. And there would be some back and forth. And unlike other players, Chris Kreider actually said, yeah, I want to be here. And he signed on for it. But the, the way I look at it is it's a great strategy for the Knicks. It's, it's a, a ruthless one. It's one where fans would be potentially upset by it because it's a very different scenario between an unrestricted free agent who wants a lot of money and a lot of years 
versus a 22-23, at least next year he'll be, um, restricted free agent in Mitchell Robinson. But it's just an interesting pathway because I'm sure that Aller will say to Leon Rose, this is the most I think we should afford for Mitchell Robinson. And he could say the same thing for Frank Nielakina or Kevin Knox for the year after that, whatever it might be. But he, he'll have a value in mind and he'll say, let's stick to this. And if, there's, if the answer is no, then we have to consider doing something else. And then the something else is, you know, you can make it up as you wish. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was at least one sort of outlook for what they might have. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be surprised either. I think it's a it's a smart one. Um, listen, get the guy, get the guy in a good number. Um, it, so we're, we're going to finish up because you you wrote a very good column on Friday, um, which um, it, from the looks of it, a lot of people took a look at um, about restricted free agency. And make a long story short, you basically said you did not think that there was any restricted free agent um, this year. Well, let me I. I Correct me if I'm wrong, but you basically preface the column by saying restricted free agency is the type of thing that is almost never a good idea to engage with. And but you also recognize there are times where there are exceptions to that rule. And then you proceeded to go through all the possible options and, and note how there are no exceptions this year, um, which I agree with um, because I do think that they intend to use their cap space this year. But I and I and I think they intend to use it by doing the same thing that was done last summer, except hopefully better, better. <laughs> which is sign guys to one year deals. Because, again, I think we're we're both of the opinion that they are they are not going to sign any long term contracts, um, you know, and I don't know if it's going to be Bertans. I don't know if it's going to be Gallinari. I don't know if it's going to be uh, it probably won't be Christian Wood. He's younger. I would imagine he wants to get some kind of years more than just dollars. Um I don't know who it's going to be, but I could see them, you know, midnight hits or whatever, 630 hits on, on whatever the, the, the new free agent dead or, or uh, kickoff day is. And it's like the Knicks have agreed with, with Dav- Davis Bertans for one year, you know, $22 million or some stupid number. Um, and that's why you can't engage in restricted free agency because you tie up your cap for, uh, what is it, eight days? That's correct. That's a Eight long days. fucking time. Oof. Oh, yeah. Um, let me ask you this. You said no on everybody. Not you said no, but you. you predict- well, I, did, I did say no. You you predicted no, um, I think. Well, let me ask you this. Is there a difference? Are there, is there anybody who you personally, if you were in control, let me rephrase that. If there were one guy that you would tie up the Knicks money for for eight days keeping all of the other things in mind that we know are at play. Which guy on your list would you do it for? It would be Ingram. Really? Even though you said flatly, and I agree with you, that there isn't a snowball's chance in hell that the Pelicans are going to let him get away? Yeah. Why? Because even though there's a goalie, it doesn't mean you can't score. That's a good look. Look, this is a star. You with the hockey. Let's get one more. We'll make it a hat trick. See, sure. that's me with the hockey. Ba-dum-bum. There we go. You, you can you can take that one. Um, <laughs> this is a stars league. And I look at the restricted free agents available and I don't see any other stars. I mean, again, Beasley has played very well as a starter in a smaller sample size for Minnesota. But, I, you know, I mean, 
I look at him the same way, and I mentioned this, at, at the same way I would look at a Tim Hardaway Jr. situation, which is you're overpaying a guy who is far better in a, in a tertiary role. And to me, you're just getting Beasley in. You're going to put too much emphasis on what he can do to the point where he's not a scorer who can actually fill in. He's, he's now doing too much. He's inefficient. His usage rating is too high. Yes, he provides spacing for other guys, but how does that impact you long term? So with Ingram, the, the big thing for me is because of the fact that he is that star and you do have the money. And really, it's at that point, sure. I mean, $15 million in difference is what I imagine it might be annually. That's a lot. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Say that part again. You The difference. That, I figure that Ingram will probably cost per year well, $15 getting, million dollars more than what Beasley will make. Then what Malik be, What's What's uh, Ingram's max? It's 28, 29? Right. It'll be somewhere around. There, whereas I think Beasley, Beasley will probably, probably sign for somewhere around 50. Yeah, okay, I got you. Right. Yeah. So in that case, you know, I mean, if you're going to go for a star, go get him. It's it, Then the question is, of course, like, well, now you're having uh, Ingram, does the 13 or whatever million dollars more that he would make over Beasley have an effect? Because now you've also lost that amount in salary that you would have to spend on other players. And I say, yes, I think that you're still getting a better player in Ingram with that money. It's a stars league. That's the important part. Again, I, I, I still have the hardest time seeing the Pelicans agreeing to letting him go unless it's in some sort of sign and trade. But if it's a sign and trade, then you don't have to wait eight days. You only have to wait the six because then you could just the moratorium's done and you don't have to wait for anyone to match the contract. You can move on. So for any fans that are holding out on an Ingram sign and trade proposal, again, I don't think it's realistic, but that would at least um, curb the idea that there are those two moratorium days, hypothetically, that you have to worry about. You, you know, know, it's funny you say sign and trade. I just thought of something. Do you want, you want to guess what I just thought of? I'm going to guess it's a sign and trade involving Brandon Ingram. New Orleans, arguably, given all the factors of play, their ownership, how they've been hit by coronavirus, the whole, the whole thing, you know, their market generally before even any of this hit, if there was a team that had to be cost conscious over the near future, wouldn't you, it would be them right now. That doesn't mean they're going to let Ingram go, just walk away. But if there were an opportunity to Swap him out for a player that was younger, that was um, very close with their the guy they just drafted, number one overall, a uh, guy who played the same position as Ingram, guy who even, you know, kind of has the same vague outline of skills as Ingram without the shooting yet. Um I, and you're saving twenty million dollars for the next three years, boy. Hmm, that's an interesting. That's an interesting proposition, wouldn't you say? I would. Would you like to divulge in the players that you're thinking of going? Oh, it's only one guy, and I, I don't think I need to. I mean, do I even need to say it's RJ? Yeah. Well, you kind of said it with the Duke part. But if you're yes. if you're the let's start with this. Forget about the Pelicans for a second. If the Knicks, if you're the Knicks, what would you rather do? For the next, just the next three years, would you rather pay Brandon Ingram $30 million a year? Or would you rather pay RJ Barrett 
um, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm, it's averages out to about nine. Yes. Right? Roughly. Or, or would you rather pay RJ Barrett $9 million a year for the next three years? I mean, for the next three years, sure. It's, it's Ingram. Of course, it's not quite that easy, but yes, just, just based on the next three years, I would take Ingram because he's closer to his prime, albeit by two to three years, but that's, those are those three years. It's not that he's closer to his prime. He's in his prime. We just saw his prime. He was an all-star last year. There's no theoretical with Brandon Ingram. He is here. It is him. This is the guy. I don't know, man. Um, oof. I wouldn't do it, personally. And I, you would I not do it? I would not. And I say that as someone who is still very high on Brandon Ingram, and I'm, I'm trying not to make it seem like the reason I'm doing that is because I'm a homer for R.J. Barrett. I... Again, I think that if the Knicks want to have some sort of plan, and we are in agreement that we think that they're going to try to have their cake and eat it too by building through the draft, making some smart, uh, cost-conscious draft or trades, and then looking through free agency, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Having Brandon Ingram and his cap hit then screws you over. Like, so it's the opposite of what I was saying does earlier. It, in terms does it of really? And the extra 12 or so million, 15 million for Ingram, like splitting it up where the, the level of talent you could get for 28 million with just Ingram versus Beasley and another player. And the reason I say that is because taking advantage of low rookie scale contracts is something that a lot of teams need to consider doing. Um, I mean, like what we had, the Nets being able to do it with KD, Kyrie, and uh, Karis LeVert. Or we had um, the other team that just did it. I, 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 the, with, the, with the Mavs, of course, where they traded for Chris Stapps and they maxed him. And now they have him on a max deal and Luka with a rookie scale co- contract. And hypothetically speaking, though they don't have the assets to trade for a player, if they got someone in free agency after, well, I guess it would be 2021 because Tim Hardaway Jr. is going to opt in, then you're looking at a very interesting situation. So, yes, you'd still have the money and you'd have Brandon Ingram as an immense talent. The only thing is that I I still think that the Knicks would probably rather, in that case, diversify the amount by having these younger guys who will still be contributing factors. Wait, diversity wins in the NBA? Really? Since when? Diversifying your portfolio? No, stacking your portfolio with Two, with one, two, or three blue chippers. That's what wins in the NBA. But what I'm saying is that if you still believe that RJ can be a blue chipper and you have his contract. Well, then that's, that's the question, isn't right. it? Of course it is. I I don't know, man. Um, oof, goodness gracious. It's, it's let me ask you this. Um, how many guys in NBA history um, at the age of 22 or under, scored 24 points a game, had six rebounds a game, and at least four four assists a game while hitting um, at least 38% of their threes. How many guys in the, in the history of the NBA do you think did that? So again, I'm going to say it one more time. 24 points a game, six rebounds a game, four assists a game with a three-point percentage of 38% or higher. And the age of 22 or younger. How many guys in NBA history did that? I'll say seven. Uh, it's one. And do you know who that guy is? Brandon Ingram. Brandon Ingram. All right, and, let me ask you this. How yeah. many of those guys, however many that there are, 
were also a part of a winning team when that was happening. Well, <laughs> zero. Look, again, well, come this on. That's... This is just me saying that it's very possible that he's a great player. And you can also say, like, well, what else would be around him, right? Because that's the other important piece. You get the guy in the building. We've always talked about getting your alpha in the building. I, I'm still skeptical that Brandon Ingram is a definitive alpha. But I don't think he's an alpha. I think he's a Pippin. But if you get the Pippin, it makes the it makes the situation a hell of a lot more appealing to that alpha. And and by the way, I should say that it. I part of me is like, why did I even? open this can of worms because I don't think the Pelicans would consider this for a second. No, I don't think so either. And also we hadn't even discussed what else is going back because I was about to say it's, it's, it's RJ and so what's the end? Is it RJ and this year's draft pick? Is it RJ and Knox and the 27th pick in the draft? Would New Orleans even want that? I don't think I, I honestly, I don't this this is all stemming from the fact that I think that the Pelicans could have very 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 serious financial concerns. Yeah, and um, the I mean especially with the Saints because they yeah. also own the Saints as well and that is football may deny it but they are probably looking at another season or at a season with no fans <laughs> in the building. Um by the way, can I just can I just read you real quick? I have to sorry. I the, the if you take away three point percentage just 24, 6, and 4, 22 or under. Can I just read you the list? Sure. Ingram, McGrady, McGrady, LeBron, 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 Doncic, D- Michael Jordan, Kareem, Oscar, and Sidney Wicks. That's the list. It's a pretty good list. 11, 11 times and um, eight guys. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, I guess the one big thing here is if it were, say, RJ in this year's pick, what you're essentially saying to the to the fan base is all of the losing you did in 2018-19 and 2019-20, what you got from that is Brandon Ingram. And that's great. Yeah. But it's <laughs> also still like, what are you, what are you? You know what I would say? I'm a member of the fan base and you know what I would say? Thank you. That's what I would say. Oh, I would shit. say thank you if it were a rookie skill contract. But again, oh, it's just, man, the goal you opened up a can of worms here. And you're I know, get, I know, you know, what? everyone just send your hatred to John. For oh, this listen, proposal. Just, I'll take just all tweet it out at him. I beg of you. I'll take all. And listen, and for the for the record. If it, if they got the pick that would land them LaMelo Ball, um, would I do it? I I I'd have to I'd have to really sit sit and and think about that. The one thing I will say, which I don't think you could ignore, is if it is if it was the pick that was able to get them on the ball, is then when you're talking about the money aspect of this, then it's interesting because then you're talking about between Lamelo and RJ, that's twenty million dollars a year. And again, you have to ask the question, what would you rather have? Brandon Ingram for the next three years at $30 million or Ball and RJ for the next three years at a total of $20 million? And again, that it all depends on what you think of RJ and what you think of Ball in that scenario. Um, but man, whew, goodness gracious. I would, um, I don't know who the hell is going to play point guard, so that would be a problem. Uh, <laughs> Kadeem oh, Allen. What's Kade Kadeem Allen doing? Based on the rate we're running now with this team. So Wait, who? Cade Cunningham. I'm saying this team would be so bad <laughs> next year that. Do you really think so? 
I think if you just said Ingram, then you would. No, let's talk about this for a half. This is the last thing we'll talk about. Then we'll get the hell out of here. In this scenario, you're keeping Julius Randle, right? You have you have Brandon Ingram as your three. You have Julius Randle as your four. Right off the bat, I'm not thrilled with that combination. Um, you have Mitchell Robinson as your five. That's okay. Whatever. Maybe there is some world where those three guys can work. Um, I who who the hell are you getting? I guess maybe the Pelicans would send their first round pick back in the deal, and you could draft uh, Kyra Lewis. Um and run would, a rookie point. It would probably be you'd probably get some sort of guard in with your Clippers pick. Um, I think you and might. I don't think I, Lewis would go that high I, or that low. I bet you you might be able to finagle. Um, I don't know. I don't know. This is all. In, I don't know. I'm going to spend some more time thinking about this because this is too crazy. Um, sign Goran Goran Dragic for a year. Um, big big one year deal. Um, I mean, you're looking at one of the worst defensive teams we've ever seen from from a Knicks perspective with Mitchell Robinson as the backbone and with your boy Tom Thibodeau as a head coach how you doing uh I think that's all I uh, I think that's all I got well what are they gonna do when Mitch is in foul trouble after three minutes in that case you know ye of little faith (laughs) ye of little faith Oh God! See, this is why I'm happy we did the episode. I am. I I have a smile on my face now. Um, as I've now spewed my own absurdity for the last 15 minutes. Um, but it was fun, and isn't that what we're all here for? To uh, to have fun. Um, I got nothing else. Uh, anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here, Jeremy? No, I think that's all for today. <laughs> you sure? There's nothing else. Yeah, I'm no. sure. I I think that's all for today. Um, everybody out there. Um, you know stay safe and, and all that, that implies. And, uh, we're, we're all in this together. I I know I speak for Jeremy when I say that. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, we will, we will get through this and, uh, we will, uh, more importantly than that, uh, see you for another episode, um, later this week. Peace out.